Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today we begin revisiting a series of Dr. Newfelds called God and the Problem with Evil. So let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Habakkuk as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, An Invitation to Life's Great Questions. If you've ever read the book or seen the movie The Hiding Place, you'll know it's the story of a heroic Dutch woman, Corrie ten Boom. She and her sister Betsy had been hiding Jews in their house during the Second World War. Now, they were caught and along with thousands of other women were consigned to the Ravensbrück concentration camp in Germany. Conditions there were degrading and horrifying. But the two Christian women began to lead a Bible study class in the middle of that prison. You know, under normal circumstances, the guards would never have allowed that to happen. But the place was so overrun and infested with rats and lice that the guards would not enter into the prison. And so Corey called the lice God's lice, for they allowed them to freely disciple and teach and pray for their fellow prisoners. Everywhere in the concentration camp, Corey saw the grace of God. But in one scene in the movie, Corey and Betsy fell into a conversation with a fellow prisoner. And she says, if your God is such a good God, why does he allow this kind of suffering? And then dramatically, she tears off the bandages and the old rags that bind her hands. And she showed her broken and mangled fingers and then said, I'm the first violinist of the symphony orchestra. Did your God will this? You know, she could have said, if it makes you feel any better, did your God allow this? Could he have prevented this and yet chose not to? You know, some of you hearing this are already formulating answers to that question in your own mind. But before you go to easy answers about God only being in control of the big things or God allowing evil to have its moment or God seeing the wider purposes or whatever we've been trained to say, might I point out some very troubling passages? You know, it comes from the book of Job right at the end of the book. Job has been healed, but the effects of the trauma of his suffering and the loss of his children still haunt him. Job 42 verse 11 says, Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before, and ate bread with him at his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. Now, before you discount that, at least allow yourself to hear it. For all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. Now, to be clear, the word evil in Hebrew can also mean calamity or horrifying situations. And so, this verse is not saying that God is responsible for moral evil. Indeed, he's not. Indeed, I think it fitting translation to say, for all the suffering and calamity that the Lord had brought upon him. Now, if you're furrowing your brow right now, I understand. From the very beginning of the book, we're told in plain, unmistakable terms that it was Satan who requested the opportunity to bring calamity on Job. But don't so quickly acquit God for this, especially when God's not asking to be acquitted. The book of Job makes it clear that even while Satan is the immediate cause of Job's suffering, God was the ultimate cause of this. Indeed, that's exactly what Job thought. In Job 1, after Job had lost his wealth and his children had died, he says, and I'm quoting Job 1.21, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So from Job's perspective, it was the Lord who took away his children. You think that's found in Job alone. 
Remember a woman named Naomi? She'd lost her husband and then her two sons. And here's what Naomi said, and I'm reading Ruth chapter 1, verses 20 to 22. She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? See, many of you have been troubled by this. Indeed, many of us are so troubled by this that we're prone to two varying reactions. The first is to suggest that the God of the Bible is a cruel monster, for how could he allow such suffering on people? And the other reaction on the opposite side is to ignore these passages and make excuses for God for the suffering in this world. We will say things like, well, God had nothing to do with it. But it's very clear in many verses in the Bible that God is not saying, I have nothing to do with this. Indeed, God says the opposite. Exodus 4 verse 11 says, Then the Lord said to him, that is to Moses, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Or listen to Amos 3 verse 6. Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Or listen to Lamentations 3 verse 38. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Again, please understand that bad in this context does not mean moral evil. Rather, it means times of hardship and calamity, suffering. And my dear friends, that's what the Bible teaches. Now, please don't be angry with me. I'm merely a reporter. I'm reading what the God of the Bible says about himself. Still not convinced? Well, still think that I'm just pulling out some obscure verses out of the Bible from somewhere? Listen, wherever you are, You need to find a place to sit down and hold on. I'm about to shock you with some of the overwhelming verses of the Bible. Are you ready? From Isaiah 45, verse 7, God speaking, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. From Lamentations 3, 37 to 38, Who has spoken, and it came to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? From Proverbs 19, verse 21, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. In other words, people can only accomplish what God decides will stand and what will not. Our freedom to act is limited by the permission of God. So if a despite ruler rises to a throne somewhere, he can only do this if God permits. From Jeremiah 10, verse 23, I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself, that it is not in man who walks to direct his steps. Again, the same theme. We do not have the power to direct our own future. Have you ever heard the saying, life is what happens while we're making other plans? Well, Life is what happens when we find out that it is not in man to direct his steps. From Jesus in Matthew 10, 29, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? Now, if that's true of sparrows, and Jesus is arguing from the lesser to the greater, see, then it's also true of human beings. Not one of us falls to the ground apart from our father. From Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, 
and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Do you really think it possible for men and women who are made of flesh to frustrate the plans of the Eternal One? Hardly. God's purpose is the only thing that stands. From Proverbs 16, verse 33, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. And that, of course, means that God not only is sovereign, he is meticulously sovereign. That he controls every throw of the dice when you next play a board game. And if that's true of the throw of the dice, is it not true of all things? From Genesis 50, verse 20, Joseph's words to his brothers, who in hatred sold him into slavery, and Joseph says, You intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. See, behind that which is done for evil stood a sovereign God directing all things for his glory and the maximum good, even though Joseph felt for a period of time only suffering. And finally, from Psalm 115, verse 3, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Not the frustrated God in which human beings, by the exercise of their free will, regularly frustrate God. See, God's not frustrated because according to Psalm 115, verse 3, he does all that he pleases. Now, do these verses shock you? See, for many of us, they do. But unless we read Bible verses that we might struggle with, I think we're not paying attention. The God of heaven is not apologizing for the suffering of this world. He could stop it, but he has chosen not to. That's simply a fact. And let me say clearly, please don't be angry with me. All I've done is read these passages from the Bible. I assure you, I did not write this. I am merely reporting what's in the Bible. And if you're angry, your anger is not with me, it's with the Scripture. But there's no reason to be angry. These words were written by a God of love. And by the time we're done our study of Habakkuk, I hope you're going to agree that these words are indeed very loving words. From February 7th to 16th, 2020, make plans to join us for our Back to the Bible Canada Laugh Again Southern Caribbean Cruise. You'll be sailing the seas for nine days aboard Royal Caribbean's Explorer of the Seas, visiting Aruba, Curacao, Bonaire, and more. You'll be joining Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh Again's Phil Calloway, and now confirm special friends and musicians, Shane and Angela Weeb. I guarantee you'll be spiritually enriched and challenged, you'll laugh and be encouraged, and you'll enjoy great fellowship and refreshment. The Back to the Bible Canada Laugh Again Caribbean Cruise is a unique opportunity for connection, and we'd love to see you join us. Come on your own or with family and friends as you enjoy incredible ports of call, everything the ship has to offer, and a week of ministry designed specifically for the occasion. Check it all out at backtothebible.ca, laughagain.ca, or call 1-800-663-2425. We can't wait to set sail with you. If God permits all suffering that occurs in this world, where does all that lead us? You know, years ago when I was a student at the University of Saskatchewan, 
I took an introduction to philosophy and, and my professor wrote four premises on the blackboard and then proclaimed that they couldn't all be true. Premise number one, God exists. Premise number two, God is all-knowing and all-powerful. Premise number three, God is good and loving. And premise number four, evil and suffering exists. One of these four has to give, he loudly proclaimed, and most of the class agreed with him. And I, who was still a relatively new believer at the time, knew I needed time to look into those matters. For me, it's not a matter of ivory tower philosophy. It's a matter of life. It's a matter of, of hope, of, of whether, as I was preparing for pastoral ministry then, of being able to look into the eyes of the suffering and tell them to trust in God. You know, today I'm introducing a new series, and it's a study of a little book in the Old Testament. It's only three chapters long. It's called Habakkuk. Now, this book is overwhelming in what it addresses. It pictures the prophet inquiring of God. Why don't you stop evil? Now, to be clear, this is not just Habakkuk's problem or the problem of a university professor or the problem of a violinist with broken fingers. This subject matter involves every single human being. Indeed, in a short little book, we will find an invitation into life's great questions. You know, I can't possibly pretend to deal with this philosophically because this matter is personal. If you've not yet suffered, then brace yourself, for suffering will come to your door. Some become bitter, and, and some lose their faith, and some are drawn toward God and cling to him. And some spend their lifetime trying to understand. But suffering is the lot of the human race. And the God who exists could stop it all tomorrow, but he has chosen not to. And how can that be? I'm going to help crystallize our thinking by asking four big questions that we're all asking. The first is a pastoral question. It's the question we ask to our God who is shepherding us throughout our lifetime. The question is, why, O oh Lord, and how long will this go on? See, I'm reading Habakkuk 1 verse 2, and it says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Can you hear the pain and the urgency in that question? Now, when we study this book in detail, we will see what Habakkuk was concerned about. But for now, might we just simply notice that every single person has asked that very same question. How long will this go on, O God? And why do you allow such a thing? Now, to be sure, some ask it in hope and some in despair and, and some in anger. And the way we will ask is going to determine our spiritual future. In this study, I hope to help us to ask that question in a way that draws us toward God. But for now, is there anyone who hasn't asked this? Here's now the second question. See, the first question was pastoral and it's directed at God who is our shepherd. The second question is the theological question. It's to ask, what does God want of me? See, that question might mean, is there a way of escaping suffering? See, I know that there are some who claim that there is. Trust in the Lord enough, they say, and you're going to be spared all suffering. Now, let me be clear. God does deliver and heal and rescue. And I would even say that eternally, to all those who trust in him, he delivers, heals, and rescues us all. But I would be a bold-faced liar if I were to say that he always does that in this present life. But I can almost hear the response. In that case, is there any benefit in serving God at all in this life? You know, there's a little line in Habakkuk that we must not ignore. That little line gets quoted in 
the New Testament on three separate occasions, and that little line set the stage for something that rocked the world in the 1500s and lit the flame of the Protestant Reformation. Habakkuk 2 verse 4 says, The righteous shall live by his faith. Life is to be had in simple trust of God. You'll survive anything, even the great judgment to come, if you live by faith. Indeed, as Paul points out, that line from Habakkuk is the only hope that we have to be forgiven of our sins. In fact, in answer to the question of what God requires of us, understand that faith is all that God requires of you. We'll say so much more about that in this series. Here's the third question, and I call this one the apologetic question. The apologetic question seeks to ask and answer exactly what my philosophy professor asked in the classroom. If God is good and he is all-powerful, how can suffering exist? The question is apologetic in that the word apologetics means to give a defense. It's, It's normally used by Christians when we talk about giving a defense for the Christian faith in light of those who attack the faith. See, many have thought that, like my university philosophy professor, that you simply can't give a Christian defense for evil and for suffering. But here Habakkuk is going to challenge us. He will invite us to see the grand eternal purposes of God. It comes as an invitation to be filled with a sense of wonder. God's universal rule of this world is indeed good, even very good. Habakkuk will encourage us to say, in a world filled with horrible things, Lord, you do all things well. And finally, fourth, there's the spiritual question, and it simply asks, Lord, help me to know what your servant must do. The last chapter of Habakkuk, chapter 3, is an invitation to worship. I'm reading Habakkuk 3, verse 2. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. In fact, Habakkuk itself, as an entire book, invites us to be overwhelmed and then filled with joy at God's goodness, his mercy, his splendor, and his majesty. It invites us to worship when things are wonderful and even more so in the middle of suffering and sorrow. In short, this book is so relevant, I suspect that many of you will wonder why you've never been taught this book before. It's one of those essential things we need to know in order to navigate life with hope and with faith. It's one of those things that we need to know to begin to understand our lives in relationship to our God. Now, at this point, I I suspect that you might think that we should dive right into the book, but, but there's still so much to say about this remarkable book as well as this remarkable man called Habakkuk and the remarkable times in which he lived. But before we look into those matters, which we're going to do in our next teaching on this series, before we do that, we need to come to terms with our attitude as we approach this book. For this book is given to us from the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This book comes to us from the mouth of God. What we need to do is to check our attitude. See, I want to relate two conversations I've had. One was with a man who lost his son in a horrible accident. And the other conversation was with a woman who had been diagnosed with a disease that was incurable. Both of these conversations are very memorable to me to this day. I'll call the man Jerry. Jerry was angry. The death of his son had occurred a number of years ago now, but over the years, his loss and his anger was never resolved. We happened to be having coffee one day, and he, not I, brought up the issue of suffering. He asked me if I thought that God was in it, 
or whether some things just happened on their own. Well, I fell trapped because clearly this was not an esoteric philosophical discussion. This was about the death of his son. But even though I tried to avoid it, I could see he demanded I respect him enough to answer forthrightly. I told him what Lamentation 338 says, that from the hand of God both good things and calamities come. And he rose in anger from the table and he walked away. Now, we're still friends, but that moment was so very painful. The second conversation was with a woman. I'm going to call her Janelle. She had just been diagnosed with a disease that was incurable, and its prognosis, well, it was horrible. We were seated at the table as couples, my wife and I and she and her husband, and she asked me directly if God had allowed this and if this was his intention for her life. And as before, I sought to avoid the question, and as before, she wouldn't let me off the hook. I answered her in much the same way, and the conversation grew quiet, and then she said something that I'm never going to forget. Her words were, Well, praise God. I don't think I could walk through this in any other way than to know that God had ordered this pathway for me. It's it's my only hope. You know, as we work our way through Habakkuk, I am aware that all of us are either like Jerry or Janelle. Very few of us are anything other than that. And I am aware that this little book of Habakkuk has all the ability to draw out of us some rather emotion-laden responses. And so can I ask you to pray and ask God to show you who he is and to open your heart like Habakkuk and worship the God who does all things well. Oh, Heavenly Father, I pray, open our hearts to hear what you have to say about something that we all care about. In Jesus' name, amen. John, this message, I guess, could be said isn't for the light of heart. These are serious issues. This is a serious topic. But I guess the only solace we have or, or can we have is that all of these things are intended for God's purpose. Yeah, I, you know, this is a really important issue to continue to drive home. We want to say that God is never the author of moral evil, never. But that we also want to say that he is Lord of everything, and that includes horrible calamities. He's Lord of it. I mean, the only other alternative that we have is that God's not in control of this world. And if that were the case, that would be far more horrifying than we can imagine. So that's why we're studying Habakkuk, is to help every one of us, because there's not a person, Ben, that hasn't been touched by suffering in their lives. Not one of us. And uh, God uh, will be a part of this and we'll have to come to terms with what he has said about his activity in our lives and come to rejoice in it. Thanks so much, John. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. It doesn't matter where you live. The secular culture around the globe has taken its hold in our communities. It's clear that as Christians, we can't isolate ourselves from the culture around us. We need to be set apart, but how can we do that? If Christians are called to do more than just condemn what is wrong, how do we do it? There's a culture that exists today that is destructive and harmful. So how can we live as an alternative to it? How can we truly live out the alternative lifestyle that God has called us to live? Well, the first step is to open the Bible and see what God's Word has to say. In Dr. Newfeld's series, An Alternative Lifestyle, Dr. John does just that by diving into the book of Philemon. And we're excited to offer the series to you on CD as our gift. To get your copy of An Alternative Lifestyle, 
all you need to do is visit us at backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425.